Welcome to Heavy Networking. Today we're going to go deep on software-defined networking for containers and OpenStack with sponsor Juniper Networks. Juniper has revamped its approach to secure networking for telcos and telco cloud-delivered services with Juniper's cloud-native Contrail Networking, or CN2, software. CN2 lets you automate the creation of network connections for containers and for virtual machines while also providing routing, security, segmentation, and isolation of workloads. Uh, this is one of those episodes where you might want to get a notebook and take some notes because we're going to get into a bunch of stuff, including container networking interfaces, or CN concepts around service mesh, virtual routers, visibility and observability, software-defined network operations, and eBPF, our guest and guide into the guts of cloud-native contrail networking, here to after referred to as CN2, is Nick Davey. Nick is Director of Product Management for SDN and Telco Cloud Technologies. Uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Can you kind of orient us with an overview of CN2? What's it meant to do? Thanks so much, Drew. Yeah. Um, so CN2 is Juniper's solution for container networking. It fits into Kubernetes, into the CNI. Um, obviously, we'll start talking through some of these concepts in a few. Um, but uh, its its job is to provide the networking and connectivity to a Kubernetes cluster and all of the different types of workloads that are finding themselves running in Kubernetes clusters these days. And that's because Kubernetes, you know, natively doesn't have networking. You're supposed to sort of bring your own, right? Yeah. I mean, learning from the past, Kubernetes built its networking layer to be completely modular. So they define a, a set of APIs or a set of behaviors that must be delivered by the container network interface and then step back. And it's up to the job of the plugin or plugins to provide all of the networking capability that a cluster provides. We'll start at the beginning, Nick, then. Uh, you said CNI, we've said container network interface a few times here. Define that for folks that are unfamiliar. Yeah, so whenever you are starting a workload inside of a Kubernetes cluster, it's going to need to pull down an image. It's going to run the program inside of that image, but it's going to plug itself into the network right as soon as it starts. Um, that call to plug a container into the pod network, which is one of the default Kubernetes networks, gets handled by the CNI. And then as the pod goes through its various phases of connecting itself to, to other services, maybe finding another microservice in the cluster by its name, resolving that name into an IP address, and then providing all of the, the network address translation to get that packet from one microservice to another. All of those actions are the job of a CNI plugin, and all of the motions, all of the things that those plugins do are defined by the CNI. And so Juniper's CNI uh, plugin then is a CN2, the Cloud Native Contrail Networking. Is that right? That's right. And the plugin model, I, I, I kind of mentioned, you know, this is learning from the past. Kubernetes is uh, a couple generations of compute orchestrator, and depending on how you're counting these things. Previous compute orchestrators, especially open source ones like OpenStack, had clearly defined frameworks for their networking plugins. Mm -hmm. uh, Kubernetes takes it kind of a step further by abstracting away everything that a networking module can do from everything that a networking module will do or how it does it. So Juniper's CN2 solution delivers on all of the kind of predicates or actions that a CNI has to accomplish, but it's up to us how we deliver those capabilities and what extra tools, extra goodies we can include along with the, the basic standard CNI stuff. Okay, so what are you know the main problems that CN2 is trying to solve? And I think the problem space we're talking about is telcos, large enterprises that are, that are building microservices or even OpenStack-based applications. Yeah, definitely. The networking inside of a Kubernetes cluster, it kind of evolves alongside of its its workloads, right? So as Kubernetes started out and as clusters started out um, kind of as development environments or as um, environments delivering a portion of a broader application, the networking needs of pods and uh, sorry, 
I feel awful here. We keep reusing terms. Kubernetes is full of terms and acronyms and jargon. So like, we need someone to be the buzzword police on this call. <laughs> but I'll just throw this one out there just because we've, we've used it a bit. A pod is a, is a workload that lives inside of Kubernetes. That workload is made up of one or more containers. I know it's a, not a joke if you have to explain it, but the, the, the term pod was originally meant to be a pun because it was, you know, a bunch of Docker containers working together to deliver an application. And of course, Docker's logo was a whale and multiple whales swimming together are a pod. I think I've even explained this oh, on this podcast okay. before. That <laughs> makes total sense when you get that. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. And any joke you have to explain though, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, how about them pods? As the, the needs of workloads or pods in a cluster have evolved, as applications have gone from kind of development to staging to production, the things we've needed to do with the network inside of Kubernetes has changed. You know, uh, I, I view this as Kubernetes growing up from its just make it work roots into something that's now out there in production at many large enterprises, many large web scale companies. And so we've moved beyond just the problem of connectivity. And the magic trick that Kubernetes kind of delivered in its first incarnation of networking was to allow any pod to find any other pod in the cluster by name uh, and then connect to it without any sort of NAT going on in the infrastructure and in the underlay. So that was the original kind of necessary function that a CNI provided is just get packets between containers running on a pile of servers. Um, there is a surprising amount of complexity in that. One of our old and favorite concepts from the bad old days of SDN came back again, overlay tunnels. Um, you need overlay tunnels in Kubernetes uh, infrastructure because Kubernetes worker nodes are typically running as virtual machines or as guests on someone else's infrastructure. And so you have typically in a Kubernetes environment, a whole bunch of other stuff that is either kind of beyond your control or out of your purview. You've got all of these kind of um, hypervisors or bare metal servers that your stuff is running on top of. And so you need to build tunnels in between it. Uh, even if you're just, by the way, running uh, a simple kind of go, go gadget Kubernetes cluster from Amazon or Google, you're still going to be building overlay tunnels between your Kubernetes workers uh, across Google or Amazon or Microsoft's infrastructure. Um, so, Overlay tunnels became really important again as we started building really complex application topologies on top of someone else's infrastructure. And then the other magic that Kubernetes delivered was service discovery. And you heard people, like in the, especially in the early days of Kubernetes, talking a lot about service discovery, which is just really DNS <laughs> gussied up with a, a new <laughs> fancy programmable interface, right? If we keep the DNS records up to date, then you know we always know where to find the host, right? Service discovery. Um, so those were the two tricks that microservices relied upon to work in early Kubernetes environments and were kind of the, the early objectives of CNIs is just connect everything together, help me find other people to talk to, and then help me talk to them. So how is that basic functionality we needed back in the beginning evolved to, to today? What are the current requirements? If we, we, we still have that, we still need service discovery and a basic connectivity. But, you know, to me, like security, for example, has become one of the, the big things we're talking about in Kubernetes environments now. Yeah, that is always, if the first question is, how do we make them talk? Then the second question is, how do we stop them from talking? Exactly. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, security has become a huge consideration with production Kubernetes clusters. And basically, how do we embed security into the application itself as another Kubernetes resource? So uh, a couple of years back, you started seeing um, uh, some older 
open source projects refresh themselves and get new new light, new use cases as they applied themselves to Kubernetes. Uh, Calico was one of those projects that brought uh, a set of capabilities from OpenStack over to Kubernetes. And the main features that they brought were distributed firewall enforcement. Kubernetes has a part of the CNI called network policy. Network policy, just like everything else in the CNI definition, it's just a, like a dictionary, a definition of things you must do. Mm-hmm. And so the network policy spec says how Kubernetes expects firewall rules to be formed and entered, but doesn't say much about enforcement. Mm-hmm. So enter the more robust set of CNIs into the scene. Folks like, you know, CN2 from Juniper, Tigera's Calico, and now, you know, the new upstart, the new entrant, the new excitement, Cilium. All of these solutions built security policy enforcement kind of into the forefront of their solutions, not only just to deliver on that. And by the way, you're going to see this as a theme going through pretty much any part of Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. But um, all these projects aim to deliver kind of the basic set of functionality required by, say, network policy in this case, and then deliver a bunch of other custom enhancements on top of network policy to do, you know, different rule match conditions or to match on different parts of, say, the application payload or to just do different stuff with traffic, like rerouting and traffic control. So the kind of network policy plus plus, you know, security and more is the latest wave of CNI and networking solutions washing over Kubernetes. So when we're talking about firewall security in Kubernetes, a couple of questions come to mind. Are we just talking about sort of new traditional sort of stateful inspection, or are we talking about, uh, you know, L7? Uh, and are we just talking about, you can talk to this, but not to that, you know, this protocol, this port kind of thing? What, what do we mean by firewall? Again, network policy just defines how the rules are configured. It's up to the actual plugins themselves to decide how they want to enforce things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say almost every network policy implementation in this day and age is stateful based. You're talking about like a, a stateful L4 firewall, yep. just like we deliver in our, our network infrastructure all over the place today. And then you have other solutions that kind of work up the stack or use other components or projects to work across the stack. Because of the the heavy, heavy reliance and presence of gRPC and HTTP in microservices infrastructure, you'll see a lot of security solutions that are slanted towards some form of web application security. Mm -hmm. That's like if you look at the network policy plus plus, the sugar and spice that all of the projects and vendors add to their network policy implementation, you'll see them go off in various directions, kind of focusing on what their, their central use case is. Uh, certainly in the case of the more service mesh aligned uh, CNIs, they're looking at things like SNI enforcement and matching. So matching up to like the the end host of an HTTP request. They're doing some conformance or maybe um, like API verb matching so they can have some intelligence into like what actions are being requested by an API. Uh, all of that is kind of outside of the network policy spec but are ways that the various plugins differentiate themselves. CN2, because we have a very uh, network-focused view of security in a cluster, we focus on uh, traffic inspection and redirection and application-aware policies. But at our heart, we're a a networking vendor and a network provider. So our tools are very network-centric around like generating copious flow records, allowing for traffic mirroring and inspection. But every implementation of the CNI is going to have kind of a different theme slant or flavor. 
Now, you mentioned, as you were describing what some of these uh, connect, the CNI options uh, specialize in, things that are, they're like proxies. They have to be a proxy to be able to do some of that functionality. Is CN2 in the proxy camp or does it have proxy functionality? So yeah, the, the rule in SDN has always been that you need like the brains of the operation, which has typically been the controller or the config model, and then you need some muscle to enact that forwarding logic. So we saw this in the control data plane split of the original SDN architectures. Mm -hmm. If you turn your head sideways and kind of squint your eyes, you'll see that type of architecture in all of the, the CNIs as well. There's always kind of a, a worker and a controller. In CN2, we have, I mean, we are we are kind of a traditional SDN, so we definitely have that control and data plane split, but we're following the same pattern as everyone else. There will always be some form of node-based, like worker node-based infrastructure to handle the heavy lifting. Um, in the case of CN2, we have what we call the vRouter data plane. Uh, the vRouter is a packet forwarding application that lives on the node and is responsible for things like traffic inspection and uh, policy enforcement, as well as doing things like metric collection, telemetry collection, and so on. And sorry, Nick, just to, because we we're trying to keep our terms clear in this case, because we also talked about nodes and clusters and so on uh, and pods, a node is the host, right? The physical host that this is running on? Exactly. It's it's wherever the containers are going to be run or the VMs are going to be run. Okay. So I could have, could is it just, you know, uh, one vRouter uh, per physical device or could I have multiple vRouters in say multiple VMs hosting multiple pods on one physical device with multiple vRouters for each of those VMs? So the data plane needs to be wherever the, the orchestrator worker is. So like if in this case, the, the worker on a, a, a wow, yeah, you weren't kidding about the word soup. I'm now I'm noticing it. Um, <laughs> we're swimming in it. Um, yeah. So where uh, maybe it would help to, to throw one more kind of adorably whimsical term in, but it will help. I promise. Mm -hmm. um, so worker nodes in a Kubernetes cluster, um, they, they run a, a piece of software from Kubernetes called the kubelet. So the kubelet's job is to coordinate that particular node that's going to run Kubernetes workloads. Uh, with the Kubernetes API server and control pro, um, plane processes. So wherever there's a kubelet, wherever you're going to be running Kubernetes workloads, there needs to be a vRouter or a data plane that's okay. going to be responsible for plugging those workloads into the data plane and doing all the forwarding and filtering that we expect in our cluster. Okay. In, in sort of the traditional service mesh, maybe not traditional, but the Istio Envoy model, I've got Envoy as my sidecar proxy. In this case, I could think of a vRouter as a sidecar proxy. Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head because those are the two consumption models. vRouter is per node, so that's per worker. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, service meshes have been per application. So when we say sidecar, it really means application sidecar, as in like a little buddy scooting along next to the main application providing helper functions like load balancing, proxying, identity, and traffic inspection. Mm -hmm. Those two models, like you, we kind of need to abstract them away from service mesh as an incarnation, because even service meshes now are offering models where they are uh, like an infrastructure mode of deployment, where the proxy runs on the node and is a shared service that's consumed by all the applications running on that node. Mm -hmm. The service mesh space is moving to kind of a choose your own adventure model because there's certain <laughs> applications that benefit from a sidecar, but most applications benefit from having some form of infrastructure, some common consumable services that they can benefit from uh, in the cluster. And so we're seeing even 
service meshes like uh, Istio, for example, has an ambient mode where it can run the Envoy proxy in the actual Kubernetes worker node itself, and then share that between all the applications. And you're seeing similar things for like Cilium service mesh and, and, and other service mesh models. But in the big picture, and in, in the CN2 case, the, the Contrail cloud-native networking, we're talking about vRouter, one vRouter per node, however we're defining node, and that vRouter is essentially our data plane? Yeah, exactly. And that's okay. shared by all of the containers running on that particular VM or server. Okay. And this uh, vRouter is providing me my connectivity to all of the, the pods and the containers within that node. Yeah, this kind of baked my noodle when I started working with old classic Contrail many years ago. People would talk about plugging a VM into vRouter. And at first I went through kind of the, the motions of understanding. I thought vRouter was like a VM or a container that I plugged something into. And no, it's actually part of the kernel. So, okay, where do I, where do I plug that in now? Like mm -hmm. how does, how does mm -hmm. it all connect together? If you are running a bunch of Kubernetes orchestrated containers on a server. If you take a look at the interfaces on that server, you'll see a bunch of software interfaces like tap interfaces or VETH interfaces and funny looking things you don't normally see on a Linux server. Um, these are pseudo interfaces that are used to connect containers to other parts of the system. In this case, or in the case of CN2, we use those software pseudo interfaces to, to plug the kind of client side container network interface. So then the network interface you would see inside of the container, we plug that into a port on vRouter inside of the server itself. And the whole point of that, you can look at it like a logical kind of patch cable to get from one part of the operating systems network stack to another. So we're connecting the networking processes or the, the network namespace in the container into the network running inside the kernel in the vRouter namespace. And that lets the vRouter packet forwarding process handle all of the traffic coming to and from all of the containers in the cluster. Does that make sense? It's a little bit abstract, I know. It's abstract, yeah, but but yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, although one question that pops to my mind is you said, I when I was working with old classic Contrail, does that mean CN2 is not old classic Contrail? Uh, we kept our favorite bits, but we definitely rewrote most of it. So we kind of went through our throws. I think it is accurate <laughs> to say the popularity of OpenStack is uh, waning as Kubernetes becomes more popular. I think that's a non-controversial statement and hopefully that's won't yeah. make too much yeah. email. And so as we were observing this trend, we, we took an opportunity to say maybe we should re-architect and rewrite our SDN solution for kind of where the puck is going to. And in that case, it's Kubernetes. Uh -huh. SDN, I know it's it's still one of those terms. It has a lot of confusion and it's kind of messy when you say SDN. It can mean many things to many people. Contrail from its inception has always been an SDN that provided networking to a compute orchestration platform. So it, it was the SDN that plugged into OpenStack and listened to all of the networking events going on inside of OpenStack and triggered networking in servers based on those OpenStack networking events. When you are plugged that closely into an orchestrator, you end up making your solution out of all of the orchestrator bits, right? Because you know, you're building a distributed system back in 2012. What do we build it out of? Well, the same stuff as all of the other circa 2012 distributed systems. At the time, you know, Vogue technologies were things like RabbitMQ and Zookeeper and all kinds of things we don't really want to talk too much about anymore. 
um, that we're still recovering from. Modern applications or modern cloud native applications look a lot different from what we were building back in 2012. And so if you're going to plug into one of those modern applications, yeah, we can bolt on all of this old infrastructure or do what we did. We took the approach to completely revamp and rewrite um, parts of the uh, of the SDN solution to natively fit into our new home playing field, which was Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. But you're also not abandoning OpenStack. Now that we've gone forward, we'll look back because, you know, nothing lasts longer than legacy technology. So um, <laughs> there's going to be OpenStack clusters out there for years and years and years. They they power some of the most vital infrastructure in our telecom uh, networks, as well as in our, our internet services. Um, OpenStack will still be around. And of course, OpenStack was incredibly successful in high-performance computing and telco clouds. There are some things that you just cannot do with Kubernetes yet, or rather Kubernetes is still you know, being enhanced and optimized to address those particular use cases. So OpenStack is really the name of the game in some places still, and we need a solution to provide networking in OpenStack. So yeah, still doing OpenStack. But looking at the, the Kubernetes environment, so, so far we've covered CN2 provides me the networking connectivity I need for my containers. I, uh, I can do some uh, essentially layer four firewalling. Are there other capabilities inside CN2 that uh, affect the networking layer? Yeah, I, and I think it's it's good to look at what Kubernetes actually expects and application owners in particular expect out of the, the networking because ultimately our goal is to be invisible to that crowd, right? Um, to, to the application crowd, the, the developer to, yeah, crowd? Yeah. Yeah, to the folks running stuff. I mean, I would, I would argue to the folks plugging anything into any network anywhere, they want the network to be invisible infrastructure. <laughs> uh, infrastructure, by definition, if you notice it, something's going wrong. Right. So the goal of Kubernetes, like there's a there's an inbuilt networking pattern inside of Kubernetes that was designed to make the job of the application owner as easy as possible. And that is such that they can plug in a container into Kubernetes, run their microservice there, register it against the, the service catalog, and then any other container running in that Kubernetes cluster can connect to it and use it freely. That is the, the textbook definition of the network getting out of the way. You know, um, you plug something in, it works right away, and it can talk to all the other things it needs to talk to. But like we like we spoke about earlier, if the, the first step was connectivity, the second step was well blocking all that connectivity. So the networking challenge, uh, you can you can make it go away temporarily, but it's always going to be back by the time you you try and hit production. Um, so our challenge with CN2 was to define uh, a, a fairly simple interface for a fairly complex set of networking capabilities. Mm -hmm. We needed to deliver on all of the promises of the Kubernetes default networking model, which is basically that you know you can plug a pod. And by the way, if you go to the, the Kubernetes.io project website, if you check out what the networking model is, there is a like almost a a a, a promise, a covenant carved into the top of the website. It is that any pod will be able to communicate with any other running pod in the cluster without the use of NAT. Um, so how do we deliver on that? How do we get out of the way of the application owner without compromising any of our actual capabilities? Um, well, the way that we did that was by defining kind of a default application 
this kind of goes back to the, the home playing field orchestrator, right? What's the default set of networks that you get out of the box in CN2? It's the Kubernetes pod and service networks that allow you to, to deliver on that Kubernetes networking promise. And then with network policy, you can secure all of those applications that you have running in a cluster using typical firewall configuration language, right? What are the, the endpoints, ports, and protocols that we should permit between all of these various uh, applications? And then what we kind of looked at was what are the common ways or common patterns that people are going to consume security? Like how could we take a look at this flat networking model and make it still easy for folks to have, you know, the flat any to any connectivity, but then give them the ability to turn on more advanced security when they need to, preferably without a thousand knobs or buttons. What we figured out was that we could accomplish our goals just by allowing for very simple copies or consumable instances of Kubernetes networks. What we were finding was that folks were treating Kubernetes clusters as the kind of tenant boundary, assuming that they would always have their own copy of the networks and there would be never any other applications plugged into those networks that they have to compete with. So we just kind of gave application owners what they wanted. <laughs> we gave them a, an easy button that they could, or well, um, a label in this case, because in Kubernetes, almost everything is a label. Uh, we gave them a label that they could attach to resources that says, make this a private copy. And so, yeah, the, the, the trick we're trying to deliver here is that complexity and customizability of networking in Kubernetes, but delivered through kind of easy and consumable interfaces. You've talked about this from, I, I would say, a developer-centric perspective, giving them what they want. You know, the, these are the people that are going to be consuming the network to have those communications between microservices, et cetera. Okay. You also mentioned along the way something that's more infrastructure operator oriented. Uh, there's an overlay involved. So where does that factor into things? Because uh, you said there's no NATs, there's no, okay, I can you know connect from one place to another. There's an overlay in there. But show me as the network operator where that overlay factors into things. The overlay introduces a, a tight kind of uh, breakpoint between the application domain and the infrastructure domain. You have have this very clear division of the networks and systems that live in, I, and sorry, I always perceive it this way, but the stuff that lives inside of the servers versus the stuff that lives outside of the servers. Nick, we could say you know, inside the servers, we could say microservice to microservice communications outside the servers, someone actually consuming the application being served up by the uh, cluster as a whole. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and as well, kind of where the defining characteristic being what needs to leak outside of that overlay or outside of the servers, what do I need to expose to make my applications useful? So inside of the server itself, you have all of the internal Kubernetes networks, the pod and service network, and all those ephemeral IPs that get, you know, handed out to containers as they come and go throughout their life cycle. And then the job of the overlay here is to abstract all of that temporality away from the infrastructure. My top of rack switches, my gateway routers, my, my load balancers, and my infrastructure shouldn't know about you know, a particular web server container instantiating itself, delivering a, a particular job, and then winding itself up. In any more than in, a, in an old school load balance environment, you wouldn't care about the pool members sitting behind a virtual IP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I, I would argue that you used to have to work a lot harder to add and remove pool members, but yeah, yeah. you shouldn't be micro. <laughs> shouldn't be micromanaging them. And now, yeah, but they're still from come the, and go as they will. 
yeah. but from that outsider perspective is, is what I'm getting at, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you, so you're was... talking to the virtual IP. You're not talking to whatever's on the back end that you know of. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the perfect term to to leapfrog off of here is the virtual IP is the fixed IP that all of the external infrastructure communicates with our services. Mm -hmm. um, that type of information, those external service IPs are uh, a vital part of Kubernetes networking and actually a part of Kubernetes networking that most people don't think about until you know, very, very late on in the game. Uh, the reason for that is uh, a lot of the hosted or virtualized Kubernetes infrastructure handles all of the networking at the partition of kind of the inside of the cluster and the outside of the cluster. It, it handles that automatically. So you can just tell Amazon, for example, give me an ex make this endpoint externally reachable and by magic, an IP address or a host name appears that you can communicate with your service around. In CN2 and for the types of folks we've been working with, all of that infrastructure is stuff that they manage. So like I always think back to that whole, like the, the Airbox used to get, it popped up in a lot of like KDE and, and GNOME desktops. I saw this on Windows every once in a while as well, but you know, invariably something would go wrong and it would say, please contact your system administrator. And you're sitting there with your head in your hands because you are the system's administrator. <laughs> um, so it's your job to make all this work when you're doing private cloud or bare metal Kubernetes networking. Um, there's no Amazon or Google to hover above you and, and to make it all work. So inside of a lot of Kubernetes clusters, you can add various elements and projects to, to kind of break the abstractions and share some of that internal cluster networking externally. Or there's a model that CN2 and some of the other CNIs have taken whereby you allocate those virtual IP pools, basically externally writable and reachable IPs, and you give those to the Kubernetes cluster to manage as inventory. And then whenever you create an externally reachable service, and inside of Kubernetes, we have these things called load balancer services, compound word, big L, big B, that means it's powerful and magical. So it gives you a hint that it is special. Using that load balancer object, you can create a mapping between your internal ephemeral application IPs mm -hmm. and your external, you know, forever reachable virtual IP address. So how do those IP addresses get out of the cluster? So CN2 in particular treats a cluster kind of all up as a giant BGP router. So the way that we advertise those IP addresses outside of a Kubernetes cluster running CN2 is by using BGP. So the cluster says, here are the IP addresses that should be externally reachable. I advertise those up to my gateways, routers, or firewalls, and then traffic flows into the cluster. And you know that's where all the magic happens. So what kind of overlays are we talking about then in this context? Whichever one you want, Drew. And bring your own overlay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the types of ground that people fight wars over, and it's just not necessary. <laughs> Being a networking company, we've chosen overlays that network devices can speak, right? We are pragmatists at heart at Juniper Networks. And so the overlays coming out of CN2 are going to be uh, VXLAN-based. Mm -hmm. Generally, we recommend those to customers who are doing a lot of data center networking. So if you were trying to plug your, I don't know, um, you know, QFX connected servers or appliances into your Kubernetes cluster, EVPN and VXLAN, except no substitute. Mm -hmm. And inside of CN2, we have a fully baked EVPN stack supporting you know, type 1s, 2s, 5s, everything that you need to do data center connectivity. And then, of course, 
you know, sometimes, and especially in the, the places that we hang out, folks are connecting servers directly to WANs. So another encapsulation that we support is MPLS, special flavor of MPLS. We support MPLS over UDP. MPLS over UDP is particularly special because to things that don't understand MPLS over UDP, it just looks like UDP traffic. And actually that's the same trick with VXLAN as well, right? Mm. To things that don't understand MPLS over UDP or VXLAN, there's just a whole lot of UDP going between these servers. Uh If you have the stack to parse the label or the VNI, suddenly you can do more with all of that UDP flowing around. So yeah, we try and have options available and you configure these on kind of a per endpoint basis. So if you had, um, and it's pretty common to have a giant bare metal, either appliance or server or something floating around the data center, you would use EVPN and VXLAN to connect that to your Kubernetes containers. And then if you need to get out to the WAN or if you're, you know, if you happen to find yourself being a service provider with an MPLS WAN, you can do label switch and swap operations directly in your Kubernetes cluster, which is, again, a pretty cool magic trick. Yeah. So trying to imagine uh, the let's go with the EVPN VXLAN solution is the, and I think you were starting to answer the question there for me in that last sentence, but the tunnel termination points where the VTEPs are would be on the one hand inside of a V router that's a part of CN2 and on the other side, is it a physical switch or was it that other server that you were talking about? It could be a fit. I mean, in my example, it was a physical switch because I always find that's the that's the simple but very powerful trick is. And I, mm. I still show this as part of some of our longer demos, just, you know, having a server plugged into a switch that connects directly to a pod in the Kubernetes pod network. And that's then weird. your BGP <laughs> announcements could originate from there as well, then from uh, from that. Well, it would learn that from the V router and then announce into the BGP domain from that switch uh, ongoing. I think you guys know this about me. I'm a huge BGP nerd. So uh, I love when I first saw Contrail, I went gaga over the fact that we use indirect next hops. So it's the controller process sitting in the center of the, the cluster that does all the BGP interaction. So it forms the neighbors, advertise the prefixes but it acts kind of like a route reflector. The next mm. hop for the prefixes is the server itself that's running the pod or container. So your route next hop is the, the server hosting the workload. Your route server is the cluster doing all of the SDN operations, meaning you've got kind of dedicated processes and resources to scale your control plane. And then the actual traffic goes right to the worker nodes. It's a cool model. There's a lot happening at the network layer on these nodes, is there an issue with resource consumption? Because we're talking about shared infrastructure here when I'm running all of these overlays, firewall rules, and so on uh, in this cluster. Yeah, implementation is everything. And especially when it comes to opinionated orchestrators like Kubernetes, I mean, opinionated in this case is, and there's a whole lot of default behaviors that are baked into Kubernetes that, you know, any networking plugin that's going to run in that ecosystem has to deliver. The vRouter, and like I was saying, it comes down to to kind of implementation details. Mm-hmm. The vRouter needs to be responsible for efficiently doing packet lookups, flow forwarding, you know, rule maintenance. So that's why we've always had a special data plane program. Our program has lived either as a kernel module in kernel space, meaning you're kind of operating at the same layer as the rest of the networking stack, or we've been a user land process running as a like a DPDK application, which is a pull mode application specifically for network forwarding. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, it's it's absolutely a trade-off. If you have something baked into the infrastructure, I mean, that thing has to be incredibly efficient because it's now shared across all of the pods and all of the workloads on that infrastructure. Eventually, you will run out of gas. This is one of the like harder problems to solve in SDN is for a mm. software forwarder, which has like software forwarding has variable performance characteristics as the CPU gets more or less busy, things like latency and performance will change. So how do I capacity that <laughs> across all of the pods that are going to be running or all of the VMs that are going to be running on a particular server? Right. Um, uh, this is actually an area that we're doing a lot of research in right now is how do we like not only how do we solve this from a performance characteristic, how do we how do we get more gas at a V router? But the other angle to this is how do we add more insight and visibility to Kubernetes so it can tell when a particular node from a network perspective is overwhelmed? Mm. Is this where gRPC comes in? gRPC is good at handling that kind of pushback, but ultimately it's just you you just need to build, and this is one of these kind of maturity things in the Kubernetes ecosystem, we just need to build feedback loops between our networking tools and the orchestrator itself. Uh -huh. I mean, we've seen this with a lot of compute orchestrators over the years, but the schedulers out of the box tend to be fairly simple. The scheduler basically says, and by the way, the scheduler's role in a cluster is figuring out where a particular container should be run at instantiation time. Mm -hmm. So if I say, go run this web server container, the scheduler is going to look at all of the nodes in the cluster and say, which one of you computes is the best home for this new container? Nine out of 10 times, the default scheduler in any computer orchestrator is going to be memory-based because it's, it's the one thing you can't share in a server is memory. So which server has either the most available or least available, but still suitable amount of memory, put the container there. CXL is going to let us share that memory eventually. It's coming. Oh my God. Dare to dream. Um, while <laughs> so we're we'll, waiting. <laughs> one more hardware question. You were talking about, um, yes, needing compute is a trade-off here. Do smart NICs or DPUs help us at some point with this? Wow, we're going really far down the rabbit hole, aren't we, Ethan? <laughs> Why not? Why not? So, I mean, SmartNICs have a glorious future, and we keep fighting hard to make the glorious future the glorious present. Yes, they at SmartNICs, DPUs, offload all help in this space. Offload NICs, uh, there's a, a bunch of vendors out there that have just network interfaces that accelerate all kinds of aspects of the traffic. Normally, things like checksum offloading, large segment offloading, you have your cheap and cheerful network acceleration that we've seen from years gone by. Those definitely help, uh, especially in overlay type scenarios where you have a lot of checksums, you have a lot of fragmentation or segmentation. Offload NICs give you performance gains. The, the challenge, and I mean, I, I, I love the approach. It's actually what we recommend is using some form of offload NIC. But the challenge with offload NICs is the performance gains are variable based on the actual traffic characteristics themselves. So you're back in that problem that Drew was talking about, like how or how can you tell like reliably how much gas I'm going to be able to get out of this compute? You're back in a scenario where you're saying, well, you know, for some workload types, you can see a near 10% improvement. Like that doesn't help you when you're trying to say, how many pods can I fit on this server? Uh -huh. right, um, right. Smart NICs and FPGAs and DPUs give you the absolute opposite. Like that, they give you fixed throughput and performance. They take a lot of the variability off of, the table because it's a forwarding pipeline again. So it's just like having a tiny little line card inside of your server. You have deterministic throughput and latency. The only variable you have to solve for now typically is uh, connections per second or flow setup, right? Because most 
offload cards do some form of fast pack, slow path type forwarding, where the first packet of a flow um, sets up all of the forwarding instructions inside of the FPGA or DPU, and then all subsequent packets go through the fast path. So they take a lot of variability out of, out of the equation. They're still obviously like, we've seen a ton of maturity in the space. It, it's standard now to see offload NICs kind of be present everywhere, but FPGAs and smart NICs are still kind of waiting to hit mass market adoption. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is still waiting to happen in this space is having a common language for defining data plane programs. Maybe this is a lead into the next topic, but like for us to have CN2's vRouter running on, say, an Intel SmartNIC, somebody has to port that forwarding code into the Intel SmartNIC environment. So somebody actually has to do a porting process of the data plane code to run in that NIC. If another vendor comes along a week later and we want to make CN2's vRouter compatible with that other vendor's NIC, starting over from scratch, we will write a, an implementation of vRouter for that particular new NIC. If there is a common language, a common execution environment for all offload NICs, suddenly you can take your data plane program and port it anywhere. That's that will be huge to the smart NIC space. Someone from the P4 consortium is probably yelling at the podcast right now. <laughs> it's or, us. Or, it's us. We're here. <laughs> pick me, pick me. Or the, the EBPF crew as well. Seriously, there's there's now multiple competing ideas in this space. And that's the best scenario to drive innovation. Okay, so then let's dive into that because we did tease eBPF, and that is eBPF uh, technically stands for Extended Berkeley Packet Filter, but that's not really what it means anymore. It's essentially emerging as an option for networking and observability because you can run sandbox programs in the linguist kernel. Um, you mentioned Cilium as one of the projects that have, have come to prominence. Um, does CN2 have an eBPF angle? Are you playing there yet? Uh, most definitely uh, an area that we're interested in. Uh, eBPF is, like you mentioned, it's a, it's an incredible new option to run data plane programs in Linux. And uh, eBPF itself, like as a framework, is incredibly promising for network applications, as well as for system security applications, because it gives you instrumentation and visibility into the Linux network and system stack that we've not really had before. We're all super familiar with BPF, Berkeley Packet Filters, because we all use them for TCP dump or Wireshark or all of our normal network analysis tools. BPF was used largely just to create a filter in the kernel to match traffic and then to, to perform some simple actions with it. eBPF, on the other hand, has, well, it's, it's extended, um, it's enhanced, <laughs> all of the E's. It's um, extra. It has, it's extra. It most certainly is. Um, because it has a ton of options for matching and manipulating traffic, as well as flexible um, maps that you can use to store um, uh, counters or metrics. There's just so much more that you can do with it. So yeah, the Cilium crew have built a really incredible solution out of eBPF, uh, showcasing how networking and security can be performed using eBPF in the kernel. Um, we have been shipping a kernel module since... It feels like forever, but it must be around 2013 um, because, I mean, we had a similar problem we were faced back uh, or faced with back in 2013. It was how do we include capabilities into the Linux kernel that the Linux kernel doesn't have natively? Flow forwarding, MPLS used to be EVPN and VXLAN. So thanks, Linux kernel folks. VRF support. There, there was a whole bunch of things that just seem like 
you know, features you can't live without if you're a networker, but you don't find on your standard Linux server. So we created our own custom networking implementation and bundled that up inside of a kernel module that we call vRouter. So hidden behind the scenes in every classic Contrail install or every brand new and shiny CN2 install, you will see an install or a part of the installation that grabs the kernel module and inserts it into the running kernel. This approach has gotten, it's, it's been challenging over the years and it's gotten harder and harder as the sensitivity around the kernel has increased. Kernel modules, for those of you who haven't had to manage them under fire, kernel modules have to pair with whatever kernel they're running in typically. So there's all kinds of characteristics that a kernel module has to, to kind of echo or mimic to be even inserted into a running kernel. If you've ever used like the old VM tools on a Linux guest, you will have seen some of this where like open VM tools or VMware VM tools, dynamically it will grab the kernel headers, which are the, um, the information about the kernel that was compiled and is running on the system. And then the VM tools will cook themselves a custom kernel module to deliver all of the VMware or whatever the hypervisor is, whatever the, the drivers and integrations are, it'll cook those up for the specific running kernel. That is called dynamic kernel module management. So basically dynamically generate me a, a kernel based on what's what's running right now. It is super convenient, slightly error prone and wildly insecure because you're <laughs> you're letting a user land application dynamically generate something that's going to sit in the system kernel. When has um, convenience well, ever gotten in the way of security, though? I know, right? <laughs> well, and, and, and on, on that though, rock, Nick, we rested for years. <laughs> Sorry, EDPF sorry. does have a lot of guardrails in place that are supposedly to to help prevent catastrophes from happening. All, all of this perfidy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So EBPF is a reaction to all of this kind of dynamic kernel uh, modulation. Modulation. Oh, it's, gosh. It's right true. there. <laughs> dynamic kernel modulation. Where did I get that um, from? Yeah, you're too good at this game. And uh the other problem with kernel modules is they're getting incredible, like it's it's an incredibly sensitive space. So the degree of security wrapped around kernel modules is becoming more and more sophisticated. Anyway, it's an awful way to ship data planes in 2023. This is why we're so excited and invested so heavily in eBPF. We are absolutely uh, hard at work and have been uh, over the past year. Um, converting the vRouter forwarding <clears throat> logic. So everything that we do with packets inside of vRouter right now, converting that into an eBPF program. And once that is completed, we'll be able to dynamically insert that eBPF program with all of the safety, sanity, and guardrails into the kernel to do everything that vRouter does now, but without mucking with the kernel or using pseudo devices or any of these other kind of tired approaches. Do you get performance back with uh, with this flavor of the data plane, if you will, uh, using eBPF? Maybe. About, like the grandma said it best, right? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So like eBPF does a lot of things better than traditional approaches. So normally when people contrast eBPF performance to non-eBPF performance, they're looking at an application that eBPF is particularly well-suited at, say firewall policy enforcement. That's doing a lookup on a giant set of rules for you know a variable set of inputs. The hash tables built into eBPF are really, really good at that type of action. So yeah, absolutely. Most actions or most network activities see a performance improvement with eBPF. 
I'm still waiting to see what VRedder looks like because there are a ton of encapsulation, decapsulation uh, procedures. There's, you know, all of the distributed policy lookups. You know, there's expensive a lot going on inside of VRedder. A lot of expensive yeah. procedures. So yeah, it should get faster. I'm just, you know, I wanted to take this as a second to to just open the conversation around, you know, complex things take time regardless of how you're doing them. So if things get faster with eBPF and they very well may, you know, that would be wonderful, but complicated always takes time. So, you know, Kubernetes, maybe it's not bleeding edge at this point, but it's still pretty new. eBPF is even more bleeding or edge. Did you, how did June, did you, was this a customer request or is Juniper just sort of anticipating where things are going and you decided to to get on top of it as quickly as possible? We have been looking at the kernel module space for a long time and waiting for something that could solve for some of the better. sharper edges uh-huh. for, for the KMOD. Because I mean, like every, everything works today. And if you pin all the variables down properly and, you know, you can ensure the running kernel matches the module number, everything's fine. But we always are on the lookout for something better. And then again, as well as the security and sensitivity around the kernel space increase, for example, with new requirements around like cryptographically signed kernel modules or software bills of material, it's just easier to get out of that space. So eBPF was really opportunistic for us. I mean, yeah, we've had customers asking after it, but really it was it was something that we undertook to to solve what we saw as a big quality of life and life cycle management issue at the heart of SDN. Okay. So you've been in the kernel space, uh, but eBPF just seems like it's got an opportunity to make things a little easier for you and for customers. Massively easier to Ethan's point, maybe faster too. Yeah. Why would you say no? So Nick, wow, uh, there's probably another two or three or four or five more hours that we could go on about this, but um, I, we do have to bring it to an end here. I, there's a lot more we didn't cover if folks want to keep uh, exploring, looking, what are some topics that they should be investigating and where can they go? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for the phenomenal conversation today. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you both. This is a very kind of exciting time right now, as there are a lot of questions being answered around um, like the service mesh versus CNI, the capabilities that a cluster should provide as infrastructure versus the application should bring for itself. We've done a ton of writing on the Juniper Elevate blog about the thorny challenges in Kubernetes networking where uh, the application meets the infrastructure, how we solve some of the multi-cluster and multi-cloud networking challenges inside of Kubernetes. So yeah, check us out on the CN2 Elevate blog inside of the the Juniper Elevate community. I will point out it's an interactive blog, so you can hop on and post whatever questions you want or steer the conversation in whichever direction you find most intriguing. Uh, We love talking about this stuff and writing about this stuff. So uh, it's always a pleasure to get to interact with the community. Yeah, we'll have uh, links in the show notes uh, for this episode uh, to those blog posts. And you can also just go to juniper.net and search for the Elevate blogs or search for CN2, that's the letter C, the letter N, and the number two. Uh, Juniper has a whole landing page for Contrail networking. Uh, Nick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for getting us a really deep dive into this technology. Thanks to Juniper for being a sponsor because sponsors make everything we do at Packet Pushers possible. And of course, thanks to you for being a listener. If listeners weren't here, neither would we be. So if you like this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts 
podcast and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can see uh, videos we're putting online on our Packet Pushers page on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.